0: Hello, I'm Alex Totaro.
1: And I'm Alex Goldstein.
0: We're a couple of TV nerds with opinions. And this is the thing that gets you to the thing: a Halt and Catch Fire fan podcast.
1: This week we're on season one, episode eight, called The 214s, The 214s, I couldn't decide. And anyway, we're getting the band back together, all together for the first time, depending on how you're looking at it.
0: By now, you know we're re-watching the show episode by episode, digging into everything we find interesting plot, character, lighting, direction, costume, you name it. If you're in the UK like us, you'll find the whole thing on Amazon Prime.
1: It's also on a bunch of platforms in other places. So check one of those aggregator sites to find out where it is, where you are. Uh, and I promise you won't regret it. I mean, you might, but that would be your fault. Okay,
0: let's get on the road. So another <laughs> episode that I loved. Are we on the same page?
1: We are on the same page. I, I feel like it. Um, it could have been a less good episode than it actually is in some ways because it's, you know, they've got three episodes left to build this season up to something big, right? So, yeah, and we don't know at this point, I don't know if they would have known at this point that they were getting a season two. So there's lots and lots of work to do and it's a transitional sort of, okay, let's get into the last phase of the season. Let's change things up again sure. kind of episode. And it could have been, it's funny, I think I like it more knowing it could have been, a lot more fillery or a lot more jarring, but actually they handle it so beautifully. And I don't know if that's because it's uh, Count Well and Roger's writing again. And maybe like, this is what they've been trying to build to this, this moment where they bring all four of their characters that they've built in all these different ways and different writers have been, helped them build bits of it. Yeah. And now they're getting to do the first Now what happens when we put all four of them together and how do all four, what are the circumstances that bring all four of them into that room in that way? And they just, they have so much fun with it. And I, I really enjoyed it. I really did.
0: I really enjoyed it. I think you're right. And one of the things that I wrote down and was thinking while watching even episode seven was that they do really well with a mission. So when they set out an objective for what the characters will achieve or the episode, and that's not to say that this wasn't the case for any of the other episodes, but To your point about the filler versus sort of uh, uh, clear arc, this is one of those where it feels like they knew what they wanted to accomplish from A to B, and there was no sort of faff in between. It was just go, go, go from that moment. Again, that's why I felt like uh, the pilot episode, because you have this very clear uh, structure with a few twists in between, don't get me wrong, but... All of them got together for the mission that was get to Comdex with the context of what is going on, and so I think that's where it sells, or that's what spoke to me anyway around uh, just it being such a a joy to watch through through the hour, right? I
1: did, and I what I really love is that they. <laughs> they really enjoyed setting things up and knocking them down in this episode. So literally everything that you think is going to happen in the first five, 10 minutes gets like destroyed by the end of this episode. So, you yeah. know, you're know, you set up going into a Gordon who is very calm. He's meditating. He's yeah. trying to calm himself down. He's bringing himself back to kind of equilibrium. You've got Joe who's in full, slick, confident salesman mode, ready to go to Comdex and take literally no one with him. You've got, you know, boz sweeping around the office being busy and happy all these things are happening and and, then you've got donna and hunt kind of turning up to her house and you think oh does that mean donna is gonna like leave or have an affair or whatever and all of those dominoes are just trashed by the end of the episode yeah joe's not going alone gordon's anything but can't he spoke i mean he's he's got a good sense of energy as opposed to the more destructive sense which we know can hit him but you know he's all energized donna decides to go with him uh boz oh my god big boz episode he's finally yes. kind of having his moment so i i love that they you're, you're right i think it feels like an episode that was. Um, in the best possible way that was planned really well and just kind of went, right, we're going to set up all these skittles and then go
0: boom. <laughs> well, even even scenes between Joe and his father, like before we've gotten little glimpses at potential leads that didn't really lead anywhere. And I'm glad that this episode kind of managed to at least knock them down to your point. It was like, well, we're setting this up. And then even if we knock it down to then give him a different challenge... We are going to do it. We're not going to wait until the finale, which I'm glad they did. And actually, the next episode is Comdex. So I am glad that we don't have to wait until the very last episode for this kind of energy to be bringing us forward, because it would be so frustrating for everyone that's been watching to get this sort of build up in an episode just to drop it and then not know if it's going to come back.
1: Absolutely, and I think even with Joe's dad, they've done a little bit of the unexpected. Because I don't know about you, but I found him way more sympathetic than I thought he was going to be.
0: Well, it's 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 credit to to sort of how Joe was written in how those interactions were, because you have that first scene between uh, S- Joe Senior and Cameron, where he was clearly the power sort of uh, player in that dynamic, f- at least from the beginning. Yeah. But now you're seeing a different sort of shift there because they're kind of equal, but then there are certain moments where, you know, Joe Sr. is like, sit down, Joe, and sort of, he sort of crashes down into, into this maybe former self in a way and you're right he was more uh sympathetic and i found them a lot more likable
1: i think we're used to seeing him as the sort of authoritarian but in a manipulative way we sort of think oh um you know he was trying to manipulate cameron and he's a power player and this is what's turned joe into joe and at first in those scenes when when he and i know we're leaping straight ahead in the story now but let's let's go with it since we're on it at first when they when they Meet and he he's demanding that he sits down and he's being very authoritarian and very like come home Joe we'll 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 fix it all we'll give you anything you want. Yeah, he seems um, manipulative again. But then when they start talking about Joe's mother, you start to actually have a good deal of sympathy. You start to think you know he didn't take his son away in order to mold him into himself. It sounds like his mum just had enormous problems and. Whether this guy did the right thing or not by sort of removing Joe from the situation is, you know, a question for much more uh, educated experts than me. I'm not an expert at all, but you can see a sort of parental need to protect Joe, which is a lot kinder than any of the motivations that we've given him credit for. So far, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think the where it gets tangled up is that by the looks of it, and we sort of got it confirmed in this episode that Joe Sr. tends to be the one handing things to Joe, whether they're earned or not. And you know, Joe is a visionary and he more than deserves his place at the table when it comes to being in the front of technology and innovation for IBM. But I think that's where things get a little bit messy because you're right in terms of that parental figure that has looked out for Joe, but also has been the hand feeding him constantly to the point where now when Joe rejects that part of it, it's like he's rejecting the whole rather than I'm going to be my own man and do my own thing. And so when he tells him, you've been out long enough, it's like, well, you know, it's th- it's that struggle, right? Between father, son, what one made the other and what one can bring to the table, if that makes sense.
1: I think you're exactly right. And the thing is that Joe is Joe senior is both the solution and the problem. So at one point he says to Joe, that thing about, you know, real dreamers make things and it touches on the real problem with Joe is like, we're always the Joe's enigma as a character is, is there anything under the vision? Right. Can he do anything that, that whole, it must be nice to have a job where you can just talk and not do things kind of thing. And, and Cameron sort of hints at him being a little bit of a kind of stuffed shirt emptiness behind the kind of robotic exterior or the, the kind of beguiling exterior. And his dad sort of touches on that vulnerability. And it's like, look, if you want to be a dreamer, you actually have to do the work and put the work in and do the things but then also is like, I'll make things work however you want, son. I'll just rearrange everything. I'll fire these people. I'll put you in charge of this. And so he's setting up Joe's vulnerability, but also feeding it. And that I think, I mean, without wishing to kind of devolve into sort of uh, a group therapy, I think that that's a thing that a lot of parents, that's a trap that a lot of parents fall into where it's like, I want you to be independent and grow up and do your own thing, but also can I just do everything for you so that you're safe and protected and bubbled and, you know, I'm a parent of a 10-year-old and that that thing comes up over and over again. Like how much do I let you do by yourself? Probably not as much as I could. And from that point of view, I actually found Joe Senior surprisingly –
0: I'm not going to say likable. I don't think he's supposed to be likable, but no. But fatherly, yeah, fatherly in a way that really shows that he does care for Joe. And then you have the other problem, which is like, okay, Joe, you're gonna fire all of our department just to get you to get your toy out, right? And how do you, to your point about whether he has anything under the hood in terms of uh, actually doing the thing instead of saying, instead of telling people to uh, to to think about doing the thing. Um, he's just willing to jump ship to the, to something that somebody else is working on. So he doesn't have any rooted um, sentiment or um, what's the word I'm looking for. Like, he doesn't have anything connecting him to the giant. And I think that's where we saw in the last episode and why we found it so interesting that Gordon was the one to bring that name to the table with all the baggage that came with it. Because if Joe is just willing to jump ship to the next thing, um, does he believe in the current project? I mean, what's the, what was the point of all of this? If not, for some sort of personal quest to find something that he didn't know he was looking for. Because when he's having that conversation with uh, Joe Sr., and he is asking him, where have you been? What have you done? And Joe is kind of like in this soul-searching mission, even though he does say that he sought out Cameron and Gordon for this project. But this is where I think Joe can be very divisive because he is selfish in that regard in bringing everyone along with him, tapping into uh, weak points to an extent, even though he is encouraging people. I mean, Gordon here is a result of that, like 100%, that energy, oh, yeah. he's, that, that he's drive. Pushed on,
1: he's pushed on every single button Gordon has, and not all of them are good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, but he's he's just kind of been like, oh, he started at the beginning. In that very, you know, in that very first episode, in that first sequence of conversations, it was the, I read your thing, it was amazing, you've got untapped potential here, but also how dare you talk in a meeting, and I'm going to scream in your face and take your, your parking spot. You know, he has absolutely sort of I swear gaslit (laughs) poor Gordon (laughs) and I know we're not always the most defensive of Gordon but this is one of the episodes in which I have liked him the most uh and I you know seeing the kind of you know now that we're ripping open Joe and seeing some of the stuffing and the vulnerability it's a lot easier to sit back and go oh Joe you know you're kind of abusive Gordon and like he he can be the worst sometimes he definitely can be selfish and obnoxious but I don't think that he deserves this and I think that you're making all those qualities like you're definitely contributing to all those qualities being worse than they need to be
0: I think he and we've seen this in the last episode in relation to that relationship with Simon I think he is being a little bit more earnest and this is also a sort of a product of that isn't it you know and that that very last scene in the last episode when when Cameron was like Cameron was like, Are you gonna get bored of me? He was like, I don't know. And this is that sort of again, in a way, isn't it? Because in a way it's Joe saying, Well, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm just gonna do it. And he was honest with the guys, which I thought was quite interesting because he could have just packed up and left. And maybe he was planning on that if they hadn't ambushed him in his uh, apartment. Probably.
1: And and but this is also an episode that starts with right at the beginning. He, he tells Cameron he'll miss her like unprompted. Yes. So we can already see a, a sort of side of Joe opening up. And in the last episode with it, sort of developing the, the soul of the machine, you know, he he, he got to that. He got to a sort of place where he could go, yes, this thing needs a soul. It needs a character. It needs a personality through two actual children and through Cameron's stories about her own childhood. So you can see that, you know, and, and the fact that he sort of obviously he adores his mother and mother figures are extremely powerful. But you can see that he sort of constructed a mythology around his mother's dreamer character and the fact that, you know, she is a teller of stories and a, and a starer at the stars. Um and you can see that he, there's a real childlike nature to that. Like they're really driving home the fact that Joe is who he is because of these formative childhood experiences. Like he would not have learned to gaze at the stars and hope for something new. But really, the question now is: does does he have anything? Is is that built on anything? Is it built on something that he can actually do? Um, and and I think the fact that it. it it's sort of the fact that you would get this revelation that joe is all appearance like all the money he has is sunk into this fancy oh yeah flat that, and, that
0: which was great
1: and his uh his thousand dollar suits and it's like the what i love i absolutely loved and i laughed out loud when they go into like cameron lets joe and uh, gordon into the flat and um gordon's like oh no he's packed up and gone and cameron's like no no he <laughs> he just lives like this and gordon goes on purpose, <laughs> I loved that.
0: And then Gordon wants to give him like uh, some furniture tips or something. Like, you know, me and Donna didn't have much in the beginning, and then we did this or whatever. <laughs> and it's it's. I also laughed out loud, and it was funny for again Joe to say, "Oh yeah, it worked." I don't have any money. This is the only suit I've got. Which I don't know if I believe a hundred percent, but I, you know, it, let, let's go with it. Let's go with it for the yeah. sake of what the story needs, right? But it
1: underlines that you know, is there anything behind Joe at all? If there isn't any money behind him, if there isn't any technical ability behind him, what is there? <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of his yeah. dad's question of, are you a dreamer? Or are you just somebody who just needs to have all the steps built in around you to make it feel like you're a dreamer? And that that's, it's our big kind of Joe character question. And I'm really glad, like you say, that they didn't leave it till episode 10 to start unpicking that because I think the kind of mystery of Joe could only sustain us for so long.
0: I've been looking into this in other shows recently. I mentioned I'm I'm watching Lucifer for the first time and I'll I'll keep those thoughts to myself. But I love uh, sci-fi shows. I mean I watch you know tons of them and you watch sort of Buffy. I watched Buffy the Vampire Diaries now Lucifer. Tons of um Smallville and there's a certain element of when the hero reveals themselves to the uh, non-celestial, let me call them beings, so the non-mythical creatures. And they reveal their powers, they reveal themselves. And 95% of the time, when done correctly, the shows are better for it. I kind of feel it like this in a way that if the characters know exactly who Joe is now, we can finally move forward. It's not a case of dragging us along to then throw a twist at us. So that's what I'm trying to get to with this. I feel like having done it now and them still wanting to go with it, including Donna, we finally get her involved in this in, in such a major way. But yeah. this is where I think now we're going to put the, um, the foot in the gas because we got it, We got everything out of the way. We sold the car. We sort of stripping ourselves of anything but the bare essentials. I mean, the FBI has come in and done that for us, right? Uh, Gordon managed to get parts of the machine, and that's it. There's no more Cardiff. There, for all for all we know, there's no more support system. There's nothing else.
1: And to to kind of go back to that kind of Wizard of Oz analogy that we had in the hurricane episode, yeah. the curtains well and truly back now, right? We know exactly who's standing behind it. Uh, you know, are they gonna are they gonna get up in the balloon? Basically, <laughs> like is this is this all going to to fall apart? And I guess now it's... Spoilers
0: for uh, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's, the... it only came out Sorry, in 19- guys.
1: 1939. Don't worry, you have time. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess that is the the kind of... I know we dive straight into Joe there, and I, and I think it, that's a really nice way in, but just to back up a bit and look at the kind of big things and moments that happen in this episode. We do finally get to dig into Joe, but I think this is the episode where we finally crack open Boz and that was really great I mean like we talked about Boz needs his own episode and I think if he's if he's gonna get one in season one this is it and it happens so quickly and almost confusingly to the point where I was like yes what um who when did this
0: happen (laughs) when yeah did I miss an episode
1: I I honestly thought for a second that I jumped ahead I was like is there the episode where they and, and of course it all kind of comes out in in explanations and uh, conversations afterwards. Yeah. But that whole sequence from Boz coming into his office and finding Nathan there, having that conversation, bursting through to to sort of make his inspirational speech to Cameron and then being arrested. That whole Well, being
0: aggressive to Cameron yeah. in the first place, right? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Throwing her out of the office and being kind of dramatic and yeah. and kind of Yeah. Deciding I think I don't know
0: you. Who are you again?
1: Yeah. And and You think to yourself, why are you being, who, what, what are you doing here? And you realize, of course, later.
0: Yeah. And thank God, because I was disappointed if that was the case, just because Nathan was around to sort of undo all the sort of relationship building he's done with the team and everyone else, especially Cameron. And what
1: I loved is that, and and, this is finally long overdue, the Toby Huss appreciation moment, because he's wonderful.
0: Oh, he's so good.
1: He's just so good. But what I really love is, is how aware he is of, Um, of Bosworth's own play acting. So in that scene where he sort of starts to, uh, where he sees Nathan and then throws out Cameron, he starts to really play up certain personality traits, which you can see it's Bos performing. So he starts saying things like, like really emphasizing some of the Southern terms, like saying bidness and curfee. And he really, really plays it up to the point that I was like, At first, I was going, I mean, this seems a bit over-egging it, Toby, mate. But then I realized it's Boz performing. uh, And I realized how clever it was. And for the first time, like, you see his office really in, like, it's the first time, I think, since Joe's interview that you see his office in daylight. And it doesn't feel cozy.
0: You can see some light through. And by the end of the episode, he's at home with no curtains. Everything is out in the open. And he's sort of sitting in the middle, almost almost free, even though, you know, that that might not be the case. All that
1: sort of posturing has been stripped away from him. And in it, I mean, it's just such a wonderful, beautifully done performance. And he just plays with Boz's ability to posture and the salesman side of it and then allows this really quiet, elegant vulnerability when he's in the house with no curtains. And also, you know how I've always said that like Donna and Gordon's house is yellow and green, like these colors that come through from family. And I couldn't help noticing that when Boz is sort of sat in that chair talking to Cameron and they, they pull the shot back, the walls are yellow and green in there. And it's almost like,
0: it's like it's home. Yeah.
1: Those are signifiers for family and home. And it, I don't know why those colors in particular, but it just felt very peaceful and very, quiet and Boz is not a person that we've been really associating with stillness and quiet he's somebody who's like picking up the phone uh, nagging at people being a bit of a dinosaur in meetings trying to get in there and get to know the developers whichever side of him whether good or bad he has been a sort of meddler and a busy person and suddenly he's still and it's but it makes sense it makes sense that he's come to that point and just sort of been kind of reduced down to his most essential parts but they're good (laughs) you know his instincts are good and they're and they're so much warmer than the 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 guy that we met in the first episode who was all like bluster and bad jokes and nonsense and like I've never wanted a character like as soon as I realized that he's in serious legal trouble I'm like you better not be writing him out because I have just started to get really invested in this guy. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) somebody frame Nathan.
1: Absolutely. And it does lead me to think again, you know, are we supposed to think that Boz orchestrated that beating or are we supposed to think that Nathan did it? And if Boz did do it, well, the loop to here and the amount that he's been transformed by that whole relationship with three out of the four, because he doesn't know Donna, um, you know, the way that he's been transformed by knowing Joe, especially, but also Cameron, like that suddenly we're seeing the result of a lot of relationship that's taken place off screen.
0: Those are really good observations. I love the uh, the home observation, those colors. Um, the, the, the great thing about Boss to me is that from day one, he was just kind of set up to be the, the not the bad guy, but the naysayer and everything else that was going on around him, right? He was meant to be the sort of, to your point, the dinosaur that just didn't understand what the kids were working on. And so was just there to maybe, um, you know, sign the checks and and that's it. For, the, for him to come this far and for us to like him this much, I think it really speaks to what the show is capable of from a character's point of view in terms of, Growing a character and that in sort of having an art that's that's worthwhile because Joe Cameron Donna Gordon, maybe not so much Donna, but from day one if we sort of get who they are We sort of understand where they could go based on what we're being shown But Boss, to be honest, and we've said it, I was surprised that he was in the pilot episode. I was surprised at how much screen time he gets from day one because he's not featured anywhere. He's not featured in the show's key art. He's not featured as sort of one of the main characters. He's not, and
1: yet he's in the opening credits. So you know that he's going to be significant in some way.
0: I'm really impressed with what the writers have been able to accomplish with them because I do think that, you know, not talking about later seasons or episodes at all, I do think that he has been that balance that we always talk about whether that's going to be there. He's just been that balance off-screen in a way and in a wider uh, scope than we realise.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, as people who are chatting about the show endlessly, one day the dream is to have, you know, Cantwell and Rogers sit in the chair and ask them all the questions. Tell us. And my big questions from this about Boz are, did they know that they were going to take him on this arc or was it something that developed a little bit more organically? Did they put him in there at the beginning in order to be the guy who takes the rap for the financial issues at this stage? And if they did that, did they anticipate kind of making him so likable that you want to go, Oh, come back, come back from prison though. Yeah. Because we really like you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I would just love to know, obviously yeah, Toby Haas was, clearly significant enough to the team to put into the opening credits um, and, you know, is is an accomplished actor. So where along the line did Boz become so important, so integral that he kind of gets half this episode effectively to himself um, and gets us all going, you know, he better, you know, there's a bit where kind of Lev and Yo-Yo start gossiping on the porch and Cameron's sort of obviously feeling a bit queasy and guilty I was so furious at Lev I'm like you told him to switch on the machine and now you're turning on him you little brat there's no loyalty here
0: (laughs) kind of reminds me when um Donna was telling her mom about the whole thing with Hunt and we'll get to that and Donna's mom is just loving the gossip right they're just she's just like she's loving that tea
1: let me bring my mug out hello
0: like slow down slow it give me all the details.
1: So obviously we've talked about the fact that it's back in the hands of Campbell and Rogers, which can I just say, I'm beginning to think in my head is like Rogers and Hammerstein or you know, <laughs> I've just I've, I've partnered them in my head, even though they write separately now. And I think they always did write separately before as well. In my head, they've just become this yeah. sort of uh double act.
0: I like this pair better than some other TV pairs and I will not talk about Game <laughs> oh, of Thrones. Yeah. So let's go with that.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so it's back in their hands, writing wise. But we have yet another new director in the director seat, okay. and it's another woman. Hmm. Uh, it's uh, director Daisy von Scherler Mayer. I think it's Mayer rather than Meyer because it's with an A. But forgive me uh, if it's wrong. So she is combined film and TV background, um, known for directing and co-writing Party Girl, uh, Parker Posey's uh, vehicle, Madeline. The Guru. She directed both of those as well, a few other things. And then she's done the kind of jobbing TV director thing on things like Mad Men, uh, Mozart in the Jungle, Orange is a New Black, Ooh. Chuck, which I liked probably more than I should have. <laughs> and my absolute like pandemic lockdown best beloved uh, crazy ex girlfriend, she directed uh, That Text Was Not Meant for Josh. So that was my lovely little, oh, hey, I know that one. Nice. So Knowing that, knowing that uh, you know she's kind of done a bit of everything, was there anything in her direction and any of the setup? And you're, you tend to be much more observant of this stuff than I am. I've noted down a couple of things, but what did you see and uh, what do you think was kind of coming from her uh, or coming from the kind of needs of the plot?
0: I think there are a few things. The most straightforward to pick out are some of the mirror shots. So... We talked about reflections in previous episodes, but this takes it to the next level because we are getting that transparency now. It's not so much all these all these games. I think that's where uh, the meaning of this camera work comes from uh, at this stage of where we are in the narrative. And we have a lot of this, especially when they are mapping out how they're going to position the machine in terms of advertisement, that comdex, or what's going to make it stand out. And you have all this, um, all these shots that are basically... Pointing at the ceiling, which has a mirror for some reason, um, it's that which is very Vegas hotel from the nineties. I've been to Vegas, but I've seen a lot of films.
1: <laughs> I have been to Vegas, and yeah, it's exactly that trashy.
0: It's exactly that, isn't it? And a mirror is a reflection of light, so it is really interesting to see how uh, she plays with this device in terms of whether we are seeing a warped reality of what is really going to happen, because we know that all that is upended, right? As soon as the FBI comes in, all that is suddenly gone. So some great foreshadowing there. With that scene of the FBI, et cetera, that raids the office. First, we finally get to see the giant when Gordon breaks into the office, which is a beautiful looking machine, if I may say so myself.
1: And then he immediately takes it to pieces, which is...
0: Yeah, he immediately... We also get to see the symphonic for the first time. Mm -hmm. which has a piano attached to it. We'll talk about that in a a second. But I think a lot of her more fast-paced stuff is really shown in here. And you also have a lot of close-up shots that are very still and really allow the characters to move about in the frame. What do I mean by this? We have that sort of short monologue from Gordon when he's explaining to someone, we don't know who they are, uh, we don't know who he's speaking to, but he's talking about the... The buzz of uh, Comdex and what it's like, and what he um, when he was there in '81, and the camera just sits there in such a way that it's just such a joy to really bring out the actors again. Like Scoot McNary does this not deluded thats not the right word—but he does this sort of kid-like wonder with uh, with a touch of uh, lack of self-awareness that really does spark something, and I, it, it, it's a joy to watch even though you're kind of like, Gordon, you're a bit over your head.
1: One of my favorite things about that, sort of, it's an exposition speech. It's right. It's a, it's a, here is what Comdex is for people who don't know. Um, But in the, in that speech, not only does he manage to make it sound natural and like Gordon's just boyish enthusiasm, he also name checks Steve Jobs, Bill Gates and Mitch Kapoor. You sort of find yourself going, who thinks they are who? in this scenario so you sort of get the feeling that if joe is going in a kind of jobsian visionary appearances or everything let's like make an emotional play is gordon supposed to be our bill gates who is more kind of like more associated with kind of functional brick building but pushing the envelope of what that something is is physically capable of doing um rather than worrying as much about sort of the the lifestyle element of it and you know i just i love the fact that it grounds it in time and space and that it gives gordon a chance for the first time a week we can go more into kind of gordon and and donna's arcs uh, in a second but i love that gordon gets given the space here to be enthusiastic because up until now he has been frenetic or catatonic he hasn't really had a chance to be playful and you know he's funny we get we get the we get the joke about how joe lives then we get the kind of slightly gift of the magi kind of goopy story about when he and donna were going to get married and she sold the ring or you know to, to get him what he needed and all the rest of it um and it's just really nice to finally not just get a crack a kind of a look under Joe's hood, but also see the part of Gordon that Donna talks about when she, I remember saying that, you know, when she was talking to Hunt and she talks about Gordon with kind of like respect and admiration for the first time, and you're like, oh, that's why you got married. Now you begin to see the reason why they were ever in a relationship, why this pragmatic, slightly beaten down woman who's sort of sitting with her mother going, this kind of thing has been happening since the day we met, you know, You see where she how she got to this point and why she still might be standing beside him beyond the, you know, sunk cost fallacy of I've invested this much time and two kids into this. So I've just got to stay around. You actually see why she might love him and have some passion and enthusiasm for their relationship at some point, because when Gordon is properly enthused about something, not just worried not just trying to solve a problem but actually wanting to put some energy and life into it you know he's really way more likable but <laughs> it's funny because in this uh, episode he actually gets quite smug and manipulative like when he kind of dangles cameron on a string and i liked him for it i was like oh thank god you finally found some sort of like energy some sort of commitment to this thing even though you're doing something that is blatantly manipulative <laughs> not great I like you more for it I mean that probably says more about me than him
0: <laughs> no yeah totally and again continuing on with uh, with the differences between the previous episodes especially the last one where the camera was hanging over Gordon a lot of the time now it's clearly in front of him right so he does have that stability and I think that's the biggest takeaway for me in terms of that camera work that there seems to be a level of stability maybe except for some of the FBI scenes where you do get the sort of rush and the editing of the door brain breaking open and, and him taking the the, the machine apart. Uh, obviously, he's got the moment where he throws the symphonic into the to the fl- to the ground, and he and it smashes into pieces. But if you if you just quickly skim through the episode, what you'll find is that we go back to a lot of still shots that really emphasize reaction and in a close up way with someone's sort of shoulder in the way or something like that. That um, it really is quite flat. Um, and in it's flat and shot, but it's given depth by the lighting and the hues. And I know I'm talking about basics here, so please bear with me. But that was the sense that I've gotten. And from from frame one, where you have Gordon sort of meditating, that's what it feels like. It feels more serene. And going back to your point about boss in that chair, it just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't feel like a fast moving sort of. Uh, really in-your-face, uh, anything. It just feels very sort of organic, if that makes sense. I know it's a difficult one. To, it, uh, you know, it's not very tangible, but I think there's such a harmony between the lighting and the shots and just the acting that it's almost like you can just sit back and watch rather than uh, be given clues based on where the camera is pointing. And this is key, right? Because we're talking about something that was that a big chunk of, what's going on in this episode happened off camera so I think for this to be the case and how we're finding out it's kind of interesting I don't know if you felt the same when watching or if you picked up anything else that I haven't
1: no actually I pretty much wrote down uh, with less uh, eloquence the same things which is that I noticed that you know there, there are a couple of patches where everything's very fast like I noted the editing work when Gordon is stripping the giant and trying to to kind of take all the pieces with him is it's like super frenetic. And there's as things are falling apart, there's a certain amount of kind of wooziness in the camera work. Like it feels a little bit um, a little bit handheld, a little bit kind of nauseating at times. But then the rest of it, what I remember really strongly from that episode is that slightly wider shot of Boz in his chair with the with the windows. And the curtains open um, or the the kind of really close close ups on Donna's face when Gordon is having his various kind of incidents around him. And it was it was actually in the lighting. I noticed that um, a lot of the time when Donna is having a sort of revelation that things might be might be possibly you you can see her debating whether things are coming to an end. And in those moments, like the lighting was such that her hair almost looked black. And when she could then gets sort of invited into the world a bit more, she seems much more vibrant, like her hair color comes back. Um, and there's one shot in particular where she kind of walks through uh, a doorway in the house and the camera is positioned in such a way to make very clear that there's pictures of the girls and the family on the wall. And it's like she's making her choice to walk away from Gordon's whatever <laughs> madness feels like a, a a harsh word but she's walking away from whatever kind of maelstrom gordon is developing and towards the family and she goes through the doorway and the pictures of the girls are on the wall and it's like she's making her choice and then in the next scene you realize she's gone to the giant and really she hasn't walked away from gordon at all she's walked towards him because where gordon is you know where his heart is to be found is always in the garage right it's back to the the days of constructing computers in the garage and all the rest of it and i loved that i loved that the kind of real simplicity of that shot the fact that it stayed back and observed the doorway and the wall while she walked through it rather than following her so that then we can make this discovery in the next scene that she is actually trying to meet him halfway and you know she write she types this command in of like you know i'm trying to find my way back and then starts yes yeah
0: was well, in all those moments are why I love the episode. Those are great observations, by the way. I love these little touches of the episode, and um, I thought the hunt thing was a bit weird in the beginning, where he's just like roaming around the bushes. It's just like, and Gordon, but again, it just shows how <laughs> how uh, unaware Gordon is because he was in the house the entire time. It was so in his head about context that like he didn't realize that you know a potential uh, love interest for Donna would be uh, right around the corner. In, I love the secretary at TI who was like, here's the card. Did you ask why? No. It's like, that's not my job. It's like, lady, please. Um, those scenes with Donna and her mother, and again, very harsh lighting uh, in the dark. And again, and Carrie Bichet sort of... Uh, lostness in her eyes when, but like, you can tell that she's such a caring person and just is properly torn about what this would mean, because I think and Gordon says it, he tells her, you're crazy too I know you are, and that was the funny thing, because it's kind of like she's been wired and and sort of coiled to just be stable, and it can no longer hold, and I, I I've said this Uh, already, but I love that the symphonic kind of represents the best of both of them. I mean, clearly, it was uh, related to Donna's uh, master of the piano. And that's such a beautiful thing, because it sort of talks about how they were passionate and personally very, very involved, maybe more than just creating a machine, but just creating a machine that is them.
1: It's sort of more their child than their children are.
0: Yeah. No, 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 yeah, yeah, totally. I was a bit confused but then it sort of came to be when she finds the the ring in the symphonic and it's like mm. Gordon if you were hiding it there don't trust the computer she's going to find it i didn't i didn't know whether that was from be- when he originally proposed and just happened to leave it there like that bit was a bit confusing until Gordon tells Cameron and which was a really nice scene because you can tell that even though he is lost in his own thought uh not self aware um just very floaty, he then makes these connections that go above and beyond action, right, or words. It's just sort of um, rooted in these principles that they build together in a way. And I just thought that was such a nice thing. And maybe that was the turning point for Donna, right? Maybe the Symphonic had to be smashed for them to move on to the Giants.
1: Well, also in in him smashing it, we... We discover, really, because, I mean, one of the things that I've sort of written over and over again in my notes is, what happened in 81? What happened? <laughs> um,
0: but... People in Reddit are saying, can we please get a spin-off with uh, them in 81?
1: 1981, that's it. That's all I want to know. But what we do know is that Donna was the one that pulled the plug on the Symphonic. It was her that was in charge of... Uh, the money basically because she was getting it from her family and what I really love structurally about this episode and how it leads on from previous ones is we've talked a lot about how you know Donna and Joe needed to build up to their moment because they didn't really have a lot in common and they're finally finding a sort of common ground and in this episode we actually finally see what their common ground is Donna and Joe both come from families who have given them stuff And we have, it's a very different scenario. So we get Donna goes back to her mum, who says things like, we love Gordon because you love him. And it's clear that, you know, they had to bankroll her projects and they're there for her. And it's all very loving and very supportive. And we know before now that Gordon's had to go to his father-in-law to get this sort of Japanese introduction and blah, 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 blah. So Donna goes back to family in this episode. She goes back to family and she's like, you know, trying to work out what her next step is. Joe also goes back to family. His family may be a lot more disordered and messy than Donna's and and perhaps less surface level supportive, but his dad has also given him everything he wants. And you know, when he asks that question, am i am I her son or yours?" And it's like you're you are, of course, a combination of both. Uh, it's it's an it, inexorable kind of combination of both. You can't do anything about that. but they both go back to family. Gordon and Cameron don't, as far as we know, have family to go back to. We have no idea what's happened to Gordon's family. We don't ever really hear about them. He doesn't really ever reference them. The only family he ever references is Donna and the kids. And Cameron, we know we know nothing about her mother, but we do know that her dad has died and that she was close to him. And, you know, she kind of carries around these little remnants of childhood. So ultimately, by, by, by virtue of the fact that Donna and Joe have kind of gone back to their roots, which is what they know and what they come from, you get the two sort of orphans, the two emotionally homeless people who have never been able to get along, who have never kind of seen eye to eye on anything, really, uh, have a very grudging respect for each other's ability to do the job. Gordon, actually, more respect for Cameron, I think, than the other way around. Um And finally, we have their moment together. So we've talked before about how the show really likes to kind of stir the pot and match up different characters in different ways. And we are long overdue a Gordon-Cameron kind of reckoning of sorts. And this is really an unpredictable way of approaching it as well, because I didn't necessarily see that Gordon would be going to Cameron and being like, you're the person who understands this. You're the person who built this stuff. You get the soul of it. I didn't see him giving her that much credit. And I, you know, I think it's done in such a beautiful way because they have nothing left but each other that they can't go back to Gordon can go back to Donna, but then he's got got to go back to defeat. And, you know, Joe, Cameron can try and go back to Joe, but Joe will always try to save Joe first. So finally, they're, they're just sort of naturally forced into a confrontation that's long overdue and I really liked the the structural way that happened and also what it what it told us about uh, you sort of the potential future so we're, we're coming coming to the end of a season which means we've got to set some trails get set some breadcrumb trails for things and it's like well how how are Donna and Gordon going to reconcile being you know, the flip side of Joe and Cameron. We never really saw Gordon as the flip side of Cameron, but he sort of, emotionally, he is. He is to Donna what Cameron is to Joe, which says really interesting things about Donna, who we haven't seen. We we, we know that there's so much more potential there that we haven't tapped yet. We've established that over several episodes. There's um, professional potential, there's personal potential. We like, we know it's there. And then, you know, what does that say about, how disruptive Gordon is going to be in the future and whether or not that's going to be productive disruption because we also know that you know, his vision of computing is very different from Cameron's and from the benefit of being in 2020 and it's maybe the only benefit of being in 2020. We know <laughs> that Cameron's vision is going to be the one that leads in the next 20 to 40 years. Uh, so I, I, I just thought it was structurally incredibly interesting.
0: I love the episode.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's the short way of saying what I just waffled for 10 minutes to say.
0: No, no. You you know, what else can I add? I mean, it's you're totally on point. I think all these things coming together, again, and not being a season finale is truly remarkable. Because otherwise, th- this could have been a season finale easily, right? It could have Absolutely. been something where you set up all these breadcrumbs, you set up this cliffhanger, uh, you don't know... Uh, what complex would be like if they even get there. You know you you're sitting up um a, you're you're hitting the reset button essentially. You're sort of stripping them of everything, just a machine which they've sort of legally acquired, but you know, Gordon found the loophole. great. Um, no money, no kids, no team, no Cardiff, no boss. So you are setting up this sort of um the band properly gets back together. And to be honest with you, this is probably how it should have been from day one, but they danced around the structure they needed to to dance around just because of all the backgrounds that they were coming in from. So this is why I'm really excited to see whether the momentum continues in the next couple of episodes. And yeah. And and hopefully we don't lose sight of this.
1: Because there's some big moments in here, right? So you 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 have the you know, what is now gonna happen to Boz, who is obviously in quite substantial legal trouble um you know what's gonna happen to the machine are they even gonna make it to Condex? are they still gonna have their like booth or whatever are they gonna are they gonna sell this thing um but you also sort of have some big character moments like gordon is the one that gets to give the inspirational speech this time like it's not joe it's in gordon's hands and it's the last person you expect you kind of think cameron could do it uh, and maybe Donna could do something like that, but you don't see it being in Gordon's hands. Who's been always so kind of mired in the detail that it's really hard to imagine him kind of setting a vision for the whole thing. And with all those big notes, like Joe going back to his dad, breaking the bat, which by the way, my notes were like, is it, is it that easy to break no, a bat over your not. knee? Even if you are giant leap no. Leapace <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Libe's laughs> so, appreciation
0: moment for breaking the bat. I mean, I was impressed. Ding. I've done Taekwondo. I could barely break the little wooden panel, so (laughs) well done.
1: They've got all these massive, like, gigantic emotional moments and big changes. And then you're like, wait, there are two more episodes? How are they not going to screw this up? (laughs) (laughs) I would. I would really make a mess of this.
0: (laughs) I love that Barry comes back in this episode as a friend to boss. Again, we're not forgetting about um, Barry, even though they were like, is this who you want as your lawyer? Oh, God.
1: And I mean, I love that, you know, they pick up... One of the things I really like about the show is that no one is introduced for no reason. True. So, you know, you have the... Even down to Joe's secretary, who is there mostly in order for people like Gordon to have somebody to yell at when Joe is unavailable. But also the creepy neighbor is back, right? The creepy neighbor makes a brief appearance. Like the guy who used to work at Cardiff and who then like came in and had that, that sort of incident with, with Cameron, like no one is ever completely wasted in this program. Um, Even the fact that, you know, I think we've seen Hunt's secretary before as well. And, you know, she has that kind of awkward exchange with Donna to tell her that Hunt has basically packed up and run off into the night, which happening right after he had a look at the computer plans and had this whole incident in Lubbock and turned up on her doorstep. And like, when he turns up like that, I was like, oh, it's like the opposite of Joe in the storm. You've got Joe in the storm who is muddy and transformed and whatever. And then you've got Hunt in the sprinkler. And (laughs) he's just like, (laughs) he's not... He's not measuring up to that.
0: <laughs> no one can measure up to that. Um,
1: oh, well, you know, quite. But, you know, there's this this whole kind of little bits of like, where the hell has Hunt gone? But what I absolutely loved about that scene, and again, it's in the little tiny details that I enjoy so much, Hunt's left and the secretary hands her the office card and it's all signed in the different signatures. And I just, didn't you just have that moment that you remembered like every birthday and every leaving due and every event at an office ever where you get the card and it's like the office hot potato and the object of it is to get it off your desk as fast as you possibly can because like you do not want to be stuck with the bloody card. And I just, I love that little note of like absolutely mundane process in the middle of all this drama and vision and excitement it was just like yeah
0: yeah yeah, we've all been yeah it was
1: just a lovely little like relatable moment in the middle of all this ridiculousness um and i really enjoyed that it was it made me laugh i was actually surprised how funny this episode is
0: So that sounds like a natural stopping point. I think, you know, we agree in how much we love this episode and how much it's done to actually carry the season over. Um, do you have any other thoughts as to... We haven't talked about the name, actually. Yes,
1: actually. That, so that was going to be my, my big question was, what is it? <laughs> what yes. does it mean? <laughs> I don't understand.
0: I think it's legal. I think it's related to the FBI investigation or the money uh, um, hacking.
1: Is it like a tax code or something?
0: Yeah, I think so
1: oh okay so my brain was just like i have no idea i uh, i didn't even try to guess
0: sometimes they make them really easy for us and other times they don't and there's a couple of episode names coming up which it'll be fun to figure out <laughs> do you mean on. the
1: next one which is <laughs> apelia which i really like saying even though i'm not entirely sure i'm saying it correctly
0: i I don't know why I can only imagine uh, you can't see me just cheating, but like, just Cameron going like up your street, uh, <laughs> situation. I,
1: th- I mean, I've, it's a phrase I've heard before. I have. Well, I have had to look it up, but we can discuss that uh, next week. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting Something one to look forward to, guys. It's an interesting one. So speaking of next week, I think we have we definitely have some thank yous in order. Um, so far, we at the time of recording, we have a little over 600 downloads now we've got our first uh five star ratings and five star reviews on uh apple podcasts which we are hugely grateful for because even though neither of us actually uses an iphone um we know that lots and lots of people find their podcasts on apple we know that it makes a difference to uh the whole apple recommendation whojima
0: flip algorithm
1: i hate that word but yeah we we know it makes a difference to the apple bias if people like us on there
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you I, I don't have
1: any problem with Apple. I have, in fact, had an iPhone for many years. I just finally got bored of it. Um, but thank you. It makes a real difference to us when you rate and review and subscribe. And also makes us feel like, you know, this. we were going to do this regardless of lockdown. Lockdown just kind of pushed us into doing it a little bit faster. Yeah. But it's really nice to feel like we're not shouting into the void. I also know from personal experience that sometimes when you are locked down and working, it's actually harder to listen to podcasts than it was before because people aren't going on their normal commuting journeys and things like that. So, you know, all those times when people would usually listen. So if you are taking an hour and 15 minutes or however long our average episode is to actually listen to some or all of any of them, um, it's hugely appreciated. And thank you for letting us into your ears.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And actually, some of the great feedback from Facebook groups and Reddits. And we know it's a difficult one to get into if you've not seen the show. But I am so impressed at those of you that have stayed along with us and really just wanted more about the show because you love it as much as we do. And I'm so comfortable with that being the case in terms of if all we're doing is speaking to you, the hardcore fan that I'm happy with that because I think we're it's from what I've seen it's such a great community online, which is very fitting. So thank you guys so much. We are nearly done with the season. We'll be doing a season wrap up as well. Um, And I'm looking forward to seeing how we um, evolve. So thank you so much. And we'll catch you on the next one.